0: Hello. My name is Timothy Vesey. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. I'm here with Dr. Jeff Curland, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh, and we are discussing a new article that came out in the Blue Journal in August. It titled, An Official American Thoracic Society Clinical Practice Guideline, Classification, Evaluation, and Management of Childhood Interstitial Lung Disease in Infancy. Hi, Dr. Curland, How are you? I'm fine, Tim. How are you today? I'm wonderful. So, this was a really good article and I think it brought into focus a lot of very important points. My first question for you is, why did the Children's Interstitial Lung Disease Research Network feel these guidelines were necessary?
1: Well, I think this dates back to the days when adult ILD was the only pathologic classification we had. When the first pediatric lung biopsies were performed, the only lexicon they had to classify them was using the adult ILD pathology classifications, which, it turned out, were not very useful in pediatrics. So that was one issue that came into the play, in, well, in the, in the early days of doing pediatric lung biopsies, which actually don't have that long a history. But subsequently, we've come up with novel diagnoses and causes of interstitial lung disease, or better said, diffuse lung disease in pediatric patients. These include mutations in surfactant proteins reported in the early 1990s and into the 2000s. These are mutations, for example, in surfactant protein B, surfactant protein C, and uh, ABCA3 or ATP binding cassette uh, type A uh, number 3 that are all involved in the formation of uh, surfactant that is functional. The majority of these patients who had these novel mutations, if you will, were infants and children. In addition, there was the recognition that there are a whole variety of causes of diffuse lung disease in children, and perhaps many of us have switched from thinking about interstitial lung disease as, a, as the umbrella to calling it more diffuse lung disease, because there are a lot of these diseases that have been recognized. For example, cystic fibrosis, primary ciliary dyskinesia, a variety of the viral pneumonitides, chronic aspiration syndromes, congenital heart disease infections in immunocompromised patients, uh, some of the lung diseases of immunocompromised patients or immunodeficient patients, and collagen vascular disease in older patients. So we had the recognition that there are a variety of diffuse lung disease, but these other newer entities that have come to the fore affecting mainly children uh, were first really pointed out to us by our pathology colleagues, and that leads to the next point. There was a major effort by a consortium of pediatric pathologists from 11 children's hospitals in North America that led to a detailed review and classification of lung biopsies from 187 patients less than two years of age. And the classification scheme that was published in 2007 in the Blue Journal points out that several of these pathologic entities are especially seen in infants. Many of these diagnoses form the core of what we now call child CHILD syndrome. These include mutations in surfactant proteins that I've already mentioned, a neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, or NEHI, pulmonary interstitial glycogenosis, or PIG, and the um, alveolar capillary uh, dysplasia with misalignment of the pulmonary veins. So these are just examples. Finally, or maybe not finally, but there have been advances in our investigative armamentarium. I mean, we now have techniques for improved imaging of these patients using controlled volume, high-resolution CT scanning. We also now have infant pulmonary function tests that are becoming more and more widely available. And as you can imagine, we have improved genetic testing and identification of genetic causes of diffuse lung disease in these patients. At a meeting that was held in association with the Rare Lung Disease Consortium, this was in about 2004, a pediatric group was involved with that meeting. And parents of some of these patients with these rare diagnoses uh, were actually uh, in attendance at our meeting. So the idea of the statement that ultimately came to be produced was brought up at that time, and we moved from then and have worked over the years to hone this particular guideline into the shape it's in, and believe me, it uh, took a lot of work by a lot of people to do it. So that's sort of the background for why we felt these guidelines were necessary. We had new diagnoses. We had a new understanding of what interstitial lung disease or, more accurately, diffuse lung disease encompasses in children, and we have new ways of approaching these patients, and we thought it would be wise for us to bring these to the attention of pulmonologists and particularly pediatric pulmonologists
0: worldwide. I completely agree with that. And I mentioned in the beginning the Children's Interstitial Lung Disease Research Network. I should explain that both Dr. Kerlin and myself are members of this research network, and it's a group of physicians that are focused on these rare disorders across both the U.S. and now worldwide. And so that's the group that produced these guidelines. So
1: At that initial meeting with those families that I talked about, uh, those families founded the Child Foundation that has been supportive of our group and continues to do that for us. So they should get a plug here, too.
0: So my next question for you, Dr. Kerlin, is how do you feel these guidelines will alter the care of children with diffuse lung disease?
1: Well, there's a few really important points that we have to make about how we're going to care for these children. I think the first point is what we know about these entities is really nascent. I think we we have a lot to learn. The first point I want to make is that How do we define child syndrome? And these are infants or children who have at least three of the four following criteria. First, they have to have respiratory symptoms, such as cough, tachypnea, difficulty breathing, exercise intolerance for older children, for example. Number two, they have to have respiratory signs, documented tachypnea, adventitious sounds, such as crackles, retractions while breathing, digital clubbing, failure to thrive, or respiratory failure, Third, they must have hypoxemia. And fourth, they must show diffuse abnormalities on chest radiograph or preferably chest tomography or CT scans of the chest. Now, if you think about that for just a minute or two, one should realize that there are a lot of pediatric lung conditions that would easily fit into that description. So one of the important points about defining child syndrome in order to make that diagnosis of child syndrome and narrowing it down one must first rule out many of the other, much more common forms of diffuse lung disease in children and infants particularly. I've already mentioned some of these, uh, but I'll mention them again. We have to rule out cystic fibrosis, primary ciliary dyskinesia if possible, aspiration syndromes that cause massive aspiration problems, immunodeficiency states, congenital cardiac disease, pulmonary infection. These are, these are the main ones. Uh, there are probably others, too. So this means that before one embarks on a uh, real specialized investigation that's uh, necessary to diagnose these novel entities, it's important first to do the job of any pediatric pulmonologist. First, get a good history of the family, including a family history. Carry out a good physical exam and look for signs of pulmonary and cardiac disease or other collagen vascular disease, et cetera. Make sure the patient is not immunocompromised, doesn't have cystic fibrosis, isn't chronically aspirating, and doesn't have a diffuse viral infection. Once that is done, once you've ruled all these things out, then a graded approach, going from less to more invasive, is appropriate. Uh, I guess what I tell my fellows uh, is there's a lot that you have to do before you schedule the lung biopsy. Now, having said that, the patient's status itself will be of really great importance in guiding how fast you do your clinical investigation and often the scope of the investigation that you're going to do. A good example of this is uh, the difference between the approach to, uh, say, a term newborn who has severe respiratory distress and respiratory failure, in whom you might suspect alveolar capillary dysplasia with misalignment of the pulmonary veins or perhaps a mutation in surfactant protein B, and comparing that with, say, the 4-month-old child with chronic tachypnea, mild hypoxemia, uh, but no other symptoms in whom you might suspect neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy that former very sick infant is going to require a rapid evaluation, possibly with very early genetic testing, as this may lead to really important decisions about, say, lung transplantation or possibly withdrawal of support. The latter patient is probably going to have a more measured, a less rushed evaluation. In both cases, though, potential underlying diagnoses, especially cardiac disease, should be ruled out first. Now, our guideline discusses the potential evaluation techniques in some detail, and that's one of the important features that that I like to to try and stress if I can, because I think the guidelines will help people out there to do this. Most importantly, I think, are the sections that deal with imaging techniques, especially controlled ventilation, high-resolution CT scanning of the chest, infant pulmonary function testing, and lung biopsy, and I'll talk about those briefly. Now, all too often, chest CT scans of tachypneic infants are performed with algorithms using relatively high radiation levels and without controlling the ventilation of these patients. We know that those results are often uh, degraded because of artifact brought about by the, the tachypnea and chest wall movement. Fred Long and, and Bob Castile at the Nationwide Children's have shown that holding ventilation at total lung capacity and also at near-functional residual capacity and doing CT scans with patients who are apneic using a lowered radiation exposure will provide very excellent imaging and also will show evidence of air trapping by comparing the images at both lung volumes. Such CT scans may show specific patterns of ground glass uh, density, for example, in the anterior portions of the lung with the patient supine. When this pattern, for example, is coupled with infant pulmonary function showing significant air trapping and relatively normal flow rates, the combination is characteristic of patients with neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, knee-high, and probably specific enough to avoid a lung biopsy. So by doing these tests correctly, you can actually save the patient an invasive procedure. Infant pulmonary function tests, of course, are now available at many centers around the country, and they are of increasing importance in determining the physiology of our patients. I just talked about the importance of this testing in knee-high, But as we follow more of these patients, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot more about them by following their pulmonary function tests sequentially. Now, lung biopsy is currently the gold standard for child syndrome, at least today. But I think as we uh, learn more about these newer entities and we identify more of the more diagnoses that fit into the child syndrome, as we understand better the genetics of these illnesses, and as we get better imaging and pulmonary function testing, the role of the lung biopsy may ultimately change in the future. At the same time, I want to point out that the neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy was first identified by bombesin staining of lung biopsies that were otherwise pretty normal. And in fact, that's the difficulty with knee patients. Their lung biopsy with normal staining looks essentially normal. And yet, anybody who's a clinician can listen to them and hear their crackles, see that they're hypoxemic and they're tachypneic. So... It's hopeful that we'll have other cellular targets, uh, as we found in NEHI, that become identified and we'll have more help with biopsy-based diagnoses in the future. When biopsies are done, we advocate having two sites in the lung biopsy, preferably in two separate lobes. The guidelines that we produced also cite references uh, describing the proper handling of lung biopsy specimen that includes ensuring that a portion, for example, of the biopsy is sent for culture, that other portions are fixed in formalin, frozen for future immunohistochemistry, and fixed for electron microscopy. The use of electron microscopy, it turns out, is very key for some of the surfactant protein mutations, such as ABCA3. Finally, I'd like to put out a word that the Child Research Network has physicians with an interest in these entities, their evaluation, their management. All of us who participated in the production of the guidelines are interested in these patients and are available to our colleagues everywhere or anywhere to discuss their patients who may have a child diagnosis, to help with their evaluation by providing services those referring physicians may not have, such as uh, infant PFTs or expertise in control volume high-resolution CT scanning, and also to offer support for their ongoing care. And those are some of the ways that I think these guidelines will help with the investigation and ultimate care of these patients.
0: So thank you for that, Jeff, and, and just kind of building on on some of the earlier statements you made about the, the testing and, and how to go about it, I think one of the best parts of these guidelines are the flow diagrams that kind of describe how we approach these patients. I was wondering if you could walk me through, using the flow diagram, how you would approach a child that's older than a month that kind of presents to your office with tachypnea or hypoxemia or anything that would be concerning for diffuse lung disease.
1: Well, thanks. I'll say that the flow diagrams, uh, these algorithms we've come up with, uh, were under a lot of scrutiny by the members of the uh, writing committee and by other people uh, whose names appended to this uh, document, and they were very difficult to produce uh, and, and get agreement on. But let me take you through this. This happens to be Uh, You know, a a proposed, and I I want to underscore the word proposed, general diagnostic approach for childhood interstitial lung disease syndrome in older patients. That is, those who are over a month of age, for example. And all of us here who are hearing this probably have seen those patients, these three or four month old children. They've been coughing uh, occasionally, but have had persistent crackles and mild tachypnea for a long period of time, but in the newborn period were relatively well. I think the first step, and it's actually not stated on this algorithm, is to get that good history, to make sure these children were normal at birth, to make sure they didn't have what was evidence of an infection, for example, or some other disease. If they have newborn screens, it's nice to have those to make sure they, to at least lower the likelihood of them having cystic fibrosis. The initial evaluation uh, will be the history, which also should include a good family history to find out if there's any history of interstitial lung disease because that will alter your approach and perhaps your thoughts about what entities to include. And finally, uh, with that history will be an environmental survey, smoke exposure, et cetera, a good physical exam again. When you are at a point where you really need to start looking at uh, evaluating these patients more thoroughly, uh, we recommend that you make sure they don't have congenital heart disease or pulmonary hypertension by a simple EKG and echocardiogram. We don't advocate necessarily doing a catheterization right away. We recommend that uh, you rule out immunodeficiency states, HIV, cystic fibrosis, or persistent aspiration, if you can, uh, with the appropriate studies. If you feel that there's a chance these patients may have either an airway abnormality or a um, pulmonary infection uh, based on perhaps a chest X-ray, then obtaining other studies such as bronchoscopy and bronchovial lavage may be indicated. But if those all turn out to be negative, If all those studies that you've done uh, don't give you a diagnosis, or if they have a positive diagnosis, such as aspiration syndrome, and you treat it, and yet they seem to be deteriorating, we would advocate proceeding to a controlled volume, high-resolution CT scan. Now, depending on the findings from that particular scan, it may point you in a direction of where to go. If the controlled volume high-resolution CT scan is suggestive of alveolar proteinosis, uh, diffuse ground glass, or crazy paving, uh, genetic testing for surfactant mutations is uh, is what we would recommend. If this controlled volume high-resolution CT scan shows ground glass densities in the anterior portions of the lung, that is the lingula and the right middle lobe with the patient supine, these are fairly consistent or at least consistent with a diagnosis of neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy. In that circumstance, we would have you consider infant pulmonary function testing. If the high resolution CT scan is non-diagnostic, we would also suggest infant pulmonary function testing. If the infant pulmonary function tests show air trapping and preserved flow in patients whose CV HRCT or high resolution CT scan is consistent with neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, That combination suggests that those patients indeed have neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy or knee-high. At that point, we would not recommend a biopsy and would instead observe the patient. And we'll talk about the patients uh, with knee-high in a second. If the infant pulmonary function tests are not consistent with neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, we would advocate that uh, those patients undergo lung biopsy for more exact diagnosis. In the patients whose high-resolution CT scan is non-diagnostic and have undergone infant pulmonary function testing, and those are not diagnostic, we feel most likely those patients would benefit from uh, lung biopsy also. Now, lung biopsies, again, should be studied by uh, electron microscopy in addition to routine fixation. And if in any circumstance the lung biopsy itself is consistent with a surfactant mutation with abnormal lamellar bodies, or other findings that are consistent with either SPB or APCA3, ABCA3 mutations. Genetic testing, if it hasn't already been done, should be undertaken and done. That's an overview of this way we approach these patients. Let me say again that the first step is always the good history and physical. The next step is the least invasive uh, studies you can do, uh, EKGs and echocardiograms, basic blood work to rule out immunodeficiency and HIV, wet test, which is also uh, minimally invasive, and then we move to bronchoscopy, BAL, if necessary, controlled volume, high-resolution CT scan, infant pulmonary function tests, and genetic testing also. Uh, the lung biopsy is, uh, if you will, the court of last resort, that's the, because that's the most invasive thing we do, and we would prefer to do the other tests prior to doing the lung biopsy, if at all possible.
0: So thanks, Jeff. I think that was uh, very useful to to run through it. And so throughout the first couple of questions, we've hinted at some of the genetic breakthroughs and things along those lines for diffuse lung disease in children. I think the use of genetic testing has really increased as our knowledge about these disorders has improved. Uh, Could you talk a bit about the genetic testing we are now recommending for these children?
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Tim. The major advances, I think, that have been made in pediatric interstitial lung disease and and child syndrome itself have mostly been, or most importantly been, in the area of molecular biology and genetic diagnosis. As I mentioned earlier, the surfactant proteins, SPB and SPC, uh, were among the first mutations associated with diffuse lung disease, interstitial lung disease in childhood. If you think about it, these were only described in the um, early or mid-90s, so these are not very, quote, old, end quote, diseases. But other diseases have also been shown to be genetically based. For example, children who have diffuse lung disease or congenital hypothyroidism, as well as neurologic findings including hypotonia and ultimately athetoid movements, we would recommend genetic testing for NKX 2.1 or thyroid transcription factor. TTF-1, because mutations or deletions in that particular gene can lead to what we call brain thyroid lung syndrome. One of the difficulties in that diagnosis is that not all children with mutations in NKX 2.1 have all three organ systems involved. Another area of uh, interest is the entity of alveolar capillary dysplasia with misalignment of the pulmonary veins this has been associated with FOXF1 deletions or mutations. This is a hard uh, or at least a difficult genetic diagnosis to make. There's really not an easy way to get that studied. It will probably soon be available more widely, but right now it's more difficult to obtain. If you have children with a pulmonary alveolar a proteinosis in the neonatal period, we would recommend testing for SPC or ABCA3 mutations as well as genetic testing for the genes encoding colony-stimulating factor receptor 2 alpha and beta chains. Those are known as CSF2RA and CSF2RB. Now, those are not always available. It's also important, if you do that, to obtain serum levels of granulocyte macrophage colony-stimulating factor. This is not a strong recommendation because it's really not easily available to get studies of mutations in CSF2RA or CSF2RB. But again, this should become more available in the near future. And I'll say this, these are fairly selective because we're looking at patients who have alveolar proteinosis. You can diagnose that alveolar proteinosis relatively easily with a good high-resolution CT scan with controlled ventilation, as you can have some specific findings that are consistent with this, In addition, having a bronchoalveolar lavage that results in a milky effluent that has few cells and is TAS-positive on staining is also consistent with pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. So those are some examples of some of the genes that are involved. Again, I'd like to say that you need both some clinical information before you proceed down this path, but with very, very sick children early, it's more important that you, uh, you try and get the results fairly quickly. Again, getting a genetic answer with a blood test is sometimes much better than having to wait uh, to get a lung biopsy in, an, in a very, very ill child. It is now possible to get SPB mutation results in less than 10 days from some of the clinical labs that are available commercially. The others usually take longer. Uh, SPB is a fairly small molecule, and so it can be and a fairly small gene, uh, so it can be uh, rapid to obtain the results. One of our figures in our paper does describe the anomalies that one should think of, early or not, depending on the age of the child, depending on their symptoms, and this points out that if the child is a newborn with respiratory distress syndrome and, and or pulmonary hypertension, if there are no other anomalies, then starting off with uh, surfactant protein B and ABCA3 initially. Uh, would be appropriate. Uh, but if there are other anomalies, such as renal anomalies, then a FOX F1, looking for ACD, uh, that is alveolar capillary dysplasia with misalignment of the pulmonary veins. If they are hypothyroid, uh, have abnormal tone, or abnormal movements, uh, adding NKX 2.1 is uh, not unreasonable. For those children who don't present in early infancy but do present before the age of two, then uh, looking for mutations in surfactant protein C or the genes encoding ABCA3 as well as if, if they have pulmonary alveolar proteinosis then looking at CSFR2A and CSFR2B that is the receptor uh, for GMCSF
0: so yeah that's figure 4 in the paper and I that's agree figure that's, four, that's figure 4 in our paper that yeah is that's a very good uh, figure to refer to so You know, unfortunately, the only kind of definitive and life-saving treatment for a number of these children with these diseases is lung transplant. You are a lung transplant physician and have some experience with these patients, and I was hoping you could give me your perspective on lung transplant for child syndrome or diffuse lung disease.
1: Well, first say that our center here in Pittsburgh has not done a lot of these patients, has not done transplants on many of these patients. We have done at least one or two Uh, The center with the largest experience at this point and with the largest published experience uh, certainly is uh, Children's Hospital in St. Louis. So I'll just say a few things in general about lung transplantation. Uh, First, lung transplantation is truly a last resort and should be a treatment that is reserved for patients who have no other viable means of prolonging their life. It is something that must be entered into um, very carefully. And it should be done at a center that has a fair amount of expertise in this. I would say that it goes especially so for young patients. It's nice to have a place that has a fair amount of experience doing uh, lung transplants in infants and children. This is a difficult uh, procedure in, in the sense that it's not surgically that difficult, but maintaining these patients afterward is what is difficult. The saying with lung transplantation is by getting a lung transplant, you trade one disease for another disease, and uh, that goes with any transplant. All of the complications or potential complications of lung transplantation, of immunosuppression, and risk for infections, etc., exist with these patients. However, having said that, the patients who have undergone lung transplantation uh, for surfactant protein mutations have actually fared at least as well as other older pediatric patients who've received lung transplants. That is to say, we shouldn't be prejudiced against doing lung transplants in these patients. If we can get them through the transplant itself, it turns out their long-term survival seems to be equivalent to that seen in other older patients who get transplanted. Most of those, by the way, are patients who are transplanted for cystic fibrosis. So I don't think we should not transplant these patients. But I think they should be uh, transplanted by people who have experience with transplantation and the follow up of such patients because they're so sick that it requires a, a, a center that uh, knows how to maintain these patients, keep them alive to last uh, long enough to get a set of lungs.
0: So, yeah, I agree with all that. I think that, you know, being at Baylor College of Medicine and at Texas Children's Hospital, we do have a, a fair number of transplant patients uh, as well, and and I, I completely agree. It needs to be thought of carefully, but there's no reason not to do it in these patients. So I guess my final question for you is, is that a, a tremendous amount of work has gone into these guidelines, and a tremendous amount of progress has been made with these diseases, but there's still a lot for us to learn and, and to know and to do for these patients. So I was hoping that you could maybe discuss one or two of the future directions for research that were stated in the guidelines guidelines that you feel are just critical for advancing the field?
1: Well, I think that there are several things that we should discuss. One in particular isn't really talked about that much in the paper itself, but uh, let me start off with one that that is, in order to follow patients like this, who are relatively rare, for whom no one center is going to have a large population, uh, it will be necessary for all of us in this field to gather together and follow our patients together. To do this, as a first start in doing this, we have formed this child research network. A lot of us uh, speak on a regular basis, and we work together uh, for the betterment of these patients. But more importantly, I think we need to follow the example of other, quote, orphan diseases, most particularly cystic fibrosis. And what the people with cystic fibrosis did early and have continued to do is to form a patient registry. Now, let it be said there are many more patients with cystic fibrosis, in this country than there are patients with child syndrome. Uh, And I think that will always be the case, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. However, we have, as members of the Child Research Network, started a child syndrome registry, a database that will enable us as a group to follow these patients over time, longitudinally, to see their progress, to see what the natural history of these entities is. I think it's fair to say that neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy, only described in 2005, has an unknown natural history. The only way we'll really be able to to document how this disease performs or or what happens to these patients is to follow them through a registry like this. That being said, this registry is now uh, in use and has started to go live. Entry of patients is being done by a variety of us around the country. And I think that we, as centers of interested in these patients uh, need to add these patients as we get them, so we'll all learn as we go. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of future directions is we need uh, good models of these diseases. We know very little about uh, neuroendocrine cell hyperplasia of infancy. We don't know why it occurs, so why these patients are as sick as they are with only having the pathology that shows additional cells in the airway walls, if you will and it doesn't explain their findings, and it doesn't explain why these patients um, have problems. So we need this for all of these diseases. One way to do that is to uh, derive pluripotential stem cells from these patients. And uh, Dr. Darrell Cotton at Boston University has been helping to guide us uh, towards this goal, I think, uh, that will be very useful in the future in having a, a means to examine the molecular biology and the cellular biology of these entities. If you think about it, having pluripotential uh, stem cells will allow us to interrogate the real molecular biology of the child entities, and ultimately it, it could serve as a potential tool for in vitro evaluation of potential treatments. Obviously, right now there are very few proven treatments for many of these child entities. Now, we all, all of us in the field, use drugs such as hydroxychloroquine. We use steroids. We use IVIG. But none of those, none of those have been really fully studied in any way, shape, or form. We need to be able to study them in vitro. Uh, we need to be able to do multicenter clinical trials uh, of those drugs also. And that's the third area I'd like to, to mention. Having said the, about the pluripotential stem cells, we can look at in vitro. A response of cells to various uh, biologics or chemicals, but to really test whether agents are, are truly effective will require multicenter trials and double-blind studies that will allow us uh, to see if drugs that we think are effective truly are effective and whether they have side effects that outweigh their benefits. For this, we're going to rely on both the Child Research Network and our colleagues around the country. Uh, having a registry will help us identify patients. Uh, having a, a network of physicians will help us get these uh, projects off the ground and get them started and uh, get answers to the questions that both we and our patients and their families have. To put it the way uh, some families feel, it's uh, we can tell them what their children have based on a lung biopsy or based on genetic testing, but we don't know a lot about how to treat them. And um, while it may be comforting to some families to have a diagnosis, to many other families it's... Um, comforting, but at the same time frustrating, I think. uh, If we can find better ways of of helping these children, of finding new treatments for them that will be effective, then we will have really done what we should do for this set of diseases. I'm sure as we find new entities, um, and I'm sure there are some out there, we will have to go through the same process. We're going to have to find out about the natural history. We will have to find out what drugs work. We'll have to find out how they work and do trials again to find uh, treatments that are effective and
0: safe. Uh, thank you for that last point there. And I just want to thank Dr. Curland for taking the time today to go over these guidelines. I think that they're very critical to, to helping these children for disseminating this information. So uh, thank you, Dr. Curland. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, too.